0: Uh, Let's talk about uh, uh, Section 702 for a minute. Uh, Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance uh, Amendments Act authorizes the uh, surveillance, uh, the the use of U.S. signals uh, surveillance uh, equipment to obtain foreign intelligence information. Um, The definition includes information that is directly related to national security, uh, but it also includes, quote, information that is relevant to the foreign affairs of the United States," close quote. regardless of whether that foreign affairs-related information is relevant to a national security threat. To your knowledge, uh, has the Attorney General or has the DNI um, uh, ever used Section 702 to target individuals abroad in a situation unrelated to a national security threat?
1: Not that I'm aware of. I think, I could be wrong, but I don't think so. I think it's confined to counterterrorism, to uh, espionage, to counter-proliferation, and those those are the buckets.
0: I was going to say cyber, but cyber fits with That's where it has typically used those things. Um, Does it, um, so to your knowledge, it doesn't currently use Section 702 to target people abroad in, in instances unrelated to national security threats?
1: I don't think so. Like a diplomat to find out how someone feels about a particular foreign policy issue or something. I don't think so.
0: Right. So if Section 702 were narrowed, to exclude such information, to exclude information that is relevant to foreign affairs, but not relevant to a national security threat, um, uh, would that mean that uh, the government would be able to obtain the information it needs uh, in order to protect national security?
1: It would seem so, logically. I mean, to me, the value of 702 is, in, is exactly that, where the rubber hits the road in the national security context, especially counterterrorism, counterproliferation. proliferation
0: now when section seven o two is used typically um, what we're talking about here is not um, metadata it's not uh this call was made to from this number to this number this is content and so if if we were talking about two u s persons two American citizens if I were calling you typically that's not something that section seven o two would be used to collect but if it's uh if it's me calling someone else. And if that person is not a U.S. person, if that person ends up being an agent of a foreign government, and if somebody has determined that communications involving that person uh, might be connected to a national security investigation, um, there's a a chance that that communication could be intercepted. Not just the fact the call was made, but also the content of that call.
1: Correct. That's what we call incidental collection.
0: And that incidental collection um, is then aggregated. You have databases that store all of these things. And so... There are lots of U.S. persons who have had communications, conversations that have themselves been recorded that are out there uh, in a a database. Uh, Can you search that database for communications involving specific U.S. persons without getting a warrant? Yes. And the fact that these... Communications were intercepted uh, without necessarily any showing of wrongdoing on the part of the U.S. person, without necessarily showing that that U.S. person had anything to do with the foreign, uh, with the national security investigation at issue. Uh, does that cause you concern that that could involve uh, a, almost a backdoor way of going after communications by U.S. persons in which they have a reasonable expectation of privacy?
1: It doesn't cause me concern, but it may be because of the way what I can see from where I am. I understand the question, though. But it's true whether it's 702 or other court-authorized domestic surveillance in the United States, if we are covering a particular embassy of a foreign power, and Americans call in and speak to them, we record that, because we're authorized to collect the communications in and out of that embassy and we store all of those in a database or we have lawfully collected those even though the American who called wasn't a target. The same happens with 702. If you contact or call a terrorist or, or someone we're targeting overseas, you're an American, you have a conversation even though you're not the target, that's gonna be collected and stored in a database. What matters is how we treat that data and that we're careful with it and we don't use it willy-nilly and we protect it in, in important ways. That's true whether we collect it in 702 or collect it domestically. I don't know how we would operate otherwise, Uh, and and that's, yeah, I don't know how we would operate otherwise. I think what the American people want us to do is make sure we hold it so we can connect dots if it turns out there's something bad in there, but treat it like the U.S. person information that it is, protect it, and make sure that it's handled in a responsible way. Senator Lee. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Director, let uh, let me tell you a story. About a hundred years ago, literally, my Italian grandparents and and my Irish grandparents uh, faced discrimination because of their religion. Now, that discrimination wasn't violence. It was economic. This was not unusual in this country at that time. I like to think that's gone. I like to think of my grandparents' the Italian grandparents, the Irish grandparents, discrimination they face because of both their race and their religion is not here. But now we see an alarming rise in hate crimes among minority communities. Yesterday, this committee heard some important testimony from the Department of Justice, from the International Association of Chiefs of Police, I believe our nation's largest civil rights organization, that law enforcement and political leaders must send a message that toxic, hateful rhetoric would not be tolerated. They must denounce bigotry wherever they encounter. Even as a child, I was taught that. We are never to discriminate against anybody because of their race or their religion. Now, what bothers me, let me show you this. On the campaign trail, President Trump Promises supporters a Muslim ban. A campaign press release entitled Donald J. J. Trump's Statement on Preventing Muslim Immigration says he called for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. Now, I can understand that dumb things are said during a campaign. That's on his website today. That goes beyond being stupid. Do you agree with me that messages like that can cast suspicion on our Muslim neighbors, can perpetuate division and hatred? And if it does, does that make America less
1: safe? Well, Senator, thank you. I'm I'm not going to comment on the particular statement, but I do agree that a perception or a reality of hostility towards any community, but in this particular, the Muslim American community, makes our jobs harder. Because as I said in response to an earlier question, those good people don't want people engaging in acts of violence in the name of their faith or in their neighborhood. And so our interests are aligned. But if anything gets in the way of that and chills their their openness to talk to us and to tell us what they see, it makes it harder for us to find those threats. So we, we've been spending a ton of time, you're right, about the increase in hate crimes. We've seen those numbers start to go up in 2014. They've been climbing since then. To redouble our efforts to get in those communities and show them our hearts and what we're like, to encourage people not to fear contact with us.
2: And, Director Comey, I don't ask this to make a political point. I ask this as a United States Senator. I believe the United States Senate can be, and sometimes has been, the conscience of the nation. We're a nation with adherence to our First Amendment. We trust and we believe in all religions, allow you to practice any religion you want or none if you want. I worry whether it's a Muslim religion or any other. You have religions where people believe in it, they should not be condemned, the actions of a few. I worry very much that the rhetoric and the hatred can bring about things that neither you nor I ever want to see in this country. I think we'd agree on that. Hate crimes, I don't care who it's against, against somebody because of their race or their religion, you as a head of the FBI, any one of us who have been prosecutors, we abhor all hate crimes, and I believe you do. Is that not correct? That's for sure. And I worry that we also give the impression that citizenship alone might be a reliable indicator of the terrorist threat posed by an individual to the United States. I think of the Oklahoma City bombing one of the greatest acts of terrorism in our country done by an American citizen who served, uh, I believe, honorably in our military. So would you um, agree that citizenship alone is not a reliable indicator of a terrorist threat posed by an individual to the United States?
1: Correct. Most of the people that I talked about that we have open cases on are American citizens. Thank you.
2: In fact, the Department of Homeland Security, we've heard from them. They have an assessment from the Office of Intelligence Analysis, concluded that citizenship is unlikely to be a reliable indicator of potential terrorist activity. Do you agree with that? Yes. Thank you. Another matter, uh, Chairman Grassley and I have worked uh, to address the concerns related to the FBI's hair and fiber analysis testimony has been flawed. I think we all accept in the past investigation began, I believe, 2012, after three men were exonerated here in Washington, D.C., because the FBI analysts gave inaccurate testimony. In order to review more than 3,000 cases, the FBI has reached out to uh, officers that originally prosecuted these cases, and I appreciate that. My main concern that cases remain closed if you don't find the transcript right away. Uh, I've asked you this question in, in writing. In any cases there where there's a missing transcript? Will you commit to have an FBI conduct an in-person visit to obtain whether there was information that was used and possibly faulty analysis by the FBI that might have brought about a conviction?
1: I'm sorry, an in-person visit? Uh, well,
2: to the uh, prosecutor's office, or whoever else may be involved, if you don't have a transcript, uh, an in-person visit to say, okay, was what do your records show? Do you... Did you use analyses that may have been faulty from the FBI and bring about the conviction?
1: I see. Um, I, I don't know enough to react to that now and commit to it now. Can I follow up with you to, to see how we're thinking about that? Will you follow up? I will. I've written to you. Okay, thank you.
2: Thank you.
3: Senator Leahy. Senator Whitehouse.
4: Thank you. Thank um, you. A couple of quick matters for starters. Did you uh, give Hillary Clinton, quote, a free pass for many bad deeds? Uh, There was a tweet to that effect
1: from the president. No, that was not my intention, certainly. Well,
4: did you give her a free pass for many bad deeds, whatever your intention may have been?
1: We conducted a competent, honest, and independent investigation, closed it while offering transparency to the American people. I believed what I said. Uh, There was not a prosecutable case there.
4: The um, with respect to the question of prosecution for classified material is the question of the consequences of the disclosure, i.e. the harm from the release or the actual secrecy of the material considered in a prosecutive decision
1: in my experience it is yes
4: because there's a great deal of material that while technically classified is widely known to the public and because overclassification is a very significant problem within the executive branch correct
1: correct and doj reserves prosecution for the most serious matters in my experience and that would have been evaluated also in looking at
4: uh, secretary clinton's emails yes Um, so although they were classified, they may not have caused any harm in terms of who saw them. Well, let me not make it specific to that. There are emails that could be classified and cause no harm if they were disclosed.
1: Yes, there are. That is the case. Um, it has been disclosed
4: and publicly reported that there was a two day interval between the FBI interview of Michael Flynn related to his conversations with Ambassador Kislyak and then-Deputy Attorney General's report to White House Counsel about those calls. Did you participate in conversations related to this matter during that two-day interval, and what can you tell us about why that interval took two days. Was there some standard operating procedure that needed to be vindicated? Was there, you would think that that could have flipped over to a conversation to the White House a good deal quicker than that once the agent's report came back from the interview.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't know whether the two days is right. I think it might've been a day. I could be wrong. Could have been two days. And I did participate in conversations uh, about that matter. And I think I'll stop there because okay. I, don't, I don't know the department's position on, on uh, speaking about those communications. But as you sit
4: here, you don't have any hesitation about that delay, about any, it representing any kind of, you know, mischief or misconduct? No,
1: no. And, and given your experience, you know how this works. An agent conducts an interview. They're going to come back. They write up a 302. They show it to yeah. their partner. They make sure they get it right. Then they produce the 302. So sometimes it's the next day before it's finished.
4: So the deputy, uh, Ms. Yates, would have seen the 302, and that process would have taken place by the time she went up to see White House Counsel McGahn.
1: I think that's right, yes. Okay,
4: thank you. Um, and on to the uh, Wiener laptop. Um, as I understand it, you were informed by agents in the FBI office that there was potentially related or relevant information in Mr. Weiner's laptop. On the basis of that information, you then sent a letter to the members of Congress before whom you had committed to answer if there were any changes in the uh, status of things. Mm-hmm. Um, you also then authorized the agents to pursue a search warrant, which then gave them access to the content, which allowed them to do the search that you then said came up with nothing so that you could then undo the letter and say, actually, we took a look and there's nothing there. Is that the, do I have the order correctly there?
1: Right. They came to me, they briefed me on what they could see from the metadata, why it was significant. They thought they ought to seek a search warrant, wanted my approval to do that. I agreed, authorized it, so did the Department of Justice, and then they reviewed, I was just making sure I get the numbers right, during the, the following week they reviewed 40,000 emails, I understated how many they reviewed, and found that 3,000 of them were work-related, um, and came from BlackBerry backups and a bunch of other things, and My the, 12, and the little... 12 of them were uh, classified, but we'd seen them all before and so they finished that work they briefed me on it and say it doesn't change our our view and then i send the second letter
4: did any of those classified emails create national security damage
1: that's a hard one answer by definition the classification is based on the potential national security damage
4: with respect to our earlier conversation the tons of stuff is classified that is on the front page of the new york times
1: I'm not aware that any of these emails or any of the emails in the investigation got into the hands of people that were able to exploit them to damage our national security. Um,
4: So let me offer you this hypothetical. They come to you and say the metadata shows that we have um, potential information here that could be relevant and could cause us to reopen the information. It would seem to me that it would be as sensible at that moment to say, how quickly can you get a search warrant? And how quickly can we get an answer to that question? Because I made a promise to people in Congress that I would get back to them with this information. And if there's anything real here, you need to get on that pronto so that I can answer that question. So that the search warrant precedes the letter rather than the letter preceding the search warrant, particularly in light of the widely Uh, adhered to policy of the department not to disclose ongoing investigative materials and the truly exceptional nature of disclosures. Why not the search warrant first?
1: Well, I pressed them very hard on that and found credible their responses that there was no way, no way they could review the volume of information they saw on the laptop in the time remaining.
4: Except That that they did.
1: Well, they did, and because our wizards at our operational technology division came up with a way to dedupe electronically, that, as I understand it, involved writing a custom software program that's going to help us in lots of other areas. But the investigative team said, "Sir, we cannot finish this before the election." So that, to my mind, that then made the judgment uh, appropriate—the one that I made—not waiting, waiting, waiting to make the disclosure.
4: Okay, and with just res- respect to your response to secretary uh to senator tillis we can talk about it some other time my time has expired but lest um silence be viewed as consent i have a different view of what took place i don't don't doubt your honesty for a minute but i do think that there were very significant mistakes made uh through this process
1: in which in the email case
4: yes okay in the hillary clinton email case yes
5: Uh, thank you to the ranking member and I admire uh your hanging in there uh, and being made of stone was it <laughs> um, sandstone i think uh, i I just want to clarify some, uh something some of the answers that you gave me uh for example in response uh, to director uh, i asked you would uh president Trump's tax returns be material to the, such an investigation, the, the Russian investigation, um, and does the investigation have access to President Trump's tax returns and some other questions you answered, I can't say, and I'd like to get a clarification on that, is, is it that you can't say or that you can't say in this setting?
1: that i won 't answer questions about the contours of the investigation uh, as I sit here i don 't know whether I would do it in a closed setting either, but for sure i, I, I don 't want to begin answering questions about what we 're looking at and how
5: okay so i 'll take that as at least in this setting you can 't do that, and maybe you can elsewhere we 're talking about some of the uh, the number of the unusual number of individuals. Uh, in important roles in the Trump uh, campaign or in his life uh, and they're sort of unexpected and often undisclosed ties to, uh, to Russia and I'd like to focus on one of those uh, individuals, Roger Stone and his relationship with Guccifer 2.0 Guccifer 2.0 is an online persona that the uh, IC concluded uh, was used by Russian military intelligence to leak documents and emails stolen from the Democratic National Committee to WikiLeaks. The U.S. intelligence community, including the FBI, has since concluded that the Russian Russian government directed the breach and that Russian military intelligence used Guccifer 2.0 to ensure that the documents obtained were publicly released. So while Guccifer has insisted that he or she is not Russian, the intelligence community has concluded that the hacker has strong ties to Moscow and was used by Russian military intelligence to leak information about the Clinton campaign and the Democrats. <laughs> Um, that was stolen by Russia. Is is that, Director Comey, a fair characterization?
1: Yes. The IC's judgment was Guccifer 2.0 was an instrument of the Russian intelligence. Thank you. Well, a
5: few months back, it was revealed that in August of last year, that's a couple months before the 2016 election, Roger Stone, one of President Trump's longstanding political mentors and at one time, a for- formal campaign advisor exchanged a number of private messages with Guccifer 2.0 via Twitter. Mr. Stone has since insisted that the relationship was totally innocuous. Now in this series of messages, Guccifer 2.0 and Mr. Stone exchange a number of bizarre pleasantries. Goosefer thanks Mr. Stone for writing about him, and Mr. Stone expresses delight that Guccifer's uh, Twitter handle was reinstated after having been suspended. But in one message, Guccifer writes to Mr. Stone, quote, I'm pleased to say that you are a great man. Please tell me if I can help you anyhow. It would be a great pleasure to me. Director Comey, to me this sounds like a clear offer from a Russian intelligence operative to collaborate with a senior official on the Trump campaign um, is that a throwaway line or an offer to help Stone in some respect? Do we know whether any further communication between Stone and Goosefer took place? And if you can't say here or can't say in, in uh, uh, but you could say in a, another uh, classified environment, could you make that distinction?
1: I definitely cannot say here. I don't think I would say in a classified environment because it calls for questions about what we're looking at and and how, okay. Sorry, but I definitely can't say here.
5: Okay. Well, at the very least, Stone's conversation with Guccifer demonstrated, um, uh, once again, that the Trump campaign officials were communicating with Russian operatives. What is less clear, however, is whether the Trump campaign ever provided direction to Russian operatives or were aware that specific actions were being carried out to influence the election. For example, it has been suggested that last year the Russians used thousands of paid trolls, human trolls, we know this, and botnets to flood the internet, particularly social media, and with fake news aimed at influencing the election and favoring President Trump. I'm curious whether such actions were part of a coordinated effort. Is there any evidence that the Trump campaign assisted or directed those efforts.
1: That's something that I can't answer here, but I, I would refer you back to what I said was the purpose of the investigation, to understand whether there were any coordination uh, or, or collusion between elements of the campaign and the Russians. Uh, of course. And um, I would point out, too, that
5: um, uh, that right before... Uh, the Podesta emails came out. Uh, that uh, Roger Stone said uh, it's, t- it look, it, it's soon going to be time for Podesta's time in the barrel. And uh, so I think there may be a little bit of a, a there there. Um, before I, I end, I just want to. I only have 30 seconds, so I, I'm. I'm I want to say this. I know Senator Cornyn isn't here. Uh, I think it's a shame that he said uh, that Hillary yesterday in this forum blamed everyone but herself. She took a lot of blame on herself um, in, um, in that forum. And I think she, when she referenced uh, what you did and, uh, in uh, 11 days before the election, which has been a subject here, uh, that, and also the Russian interference. I think she was only saying stuff that other people have said. I mean, I don't think she was saying anything that um, that a lot, a lot of people also think had uh, had an effect on the election. So I, I just think it was a shame that. Um, Uh, that the senator from Texas, I don't know if you meant to uh, leave that out deliberately, but she did not blame everyone but herself. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Say, before I call on the next senator, there's two things I'd like to say. One would be for what you promised Senator Cruz about a briefing on the Garland situation, Mm -hmm. that you would include any of the staff of the committee in on that briefing as well, so we can have a committee briefing on it as well at least at, at the staff level, would you do that?
1: I, uh, assuming they have the clearances for it, I, I don't think that's a problem I, I guess, at all. I'll do that.
5: I guess uh, that's that's obvious. The second thing is, uh, after we have two more people uh, have a second round, uh, before they get done, I have to go, and I want to thank you for being here. Senator Feinstein will close down the meeting. Thank you.
1: Thank, thank you, Mr. Uh, Chairman.
5: I think... Uh, under the previous order, Senator Hirono was ahead of you.
6: Uh, Mr. Chairman, I'm I'm happy to follow Senator
3: Hirono. Okay. Thank you. Um, as mentioned earlier, Director, in March, President Trump issued a revised refugees and visa ban executive order that suspended entry into the U.S. from six majority Muslim countries. The suspension was. This suspension was largely premised on the claim that, quote, more than 300 persons who entered the United States are refugees are currently the subjects of counterterrorism investigations by the Federal Bureau of Investigation, end quote. Can you provide any additional information on whether the persons under investigation are from the six countries subject to the suspension? And are these persons exclusively from the six countries subject to the suspension? And if not, what? other countries are represented among the population that is currently under investigation?
1: I'm, I'm sure we can provide you. What I, what I can tell you here is I think, I think about a third of them are, are from the six countries. So 300, about a third of them are from the six countries. I think two-thirds of those were from the seventh country, Iraq, that was not included. But, but I'll make sure my staff gets you the precise numbers, Senator.
3: So Iraq is the only other country that was um, not among the six targeted countries?
1: I think that's right. Obviously, as you ask it, I'm wondering whether I'm wrong. Uh, and so I'll get you the precise numbers. But Thank I, you. I think it was refugees, about 300, about a third from the six countries, about two-thirds from Iraq. That's my Thank right
3: you. Point. You can provide the um – information later. Thank you very much. And can you provide additional information on the percentage of these individuals who came to the U.S. as children?
1: I can't as I sit here. I'm sure we can get you that information. Can you check
3: that? Thank you. And can you provide additional information on the percentage of these individuals who are radicalized after having been in our country for a long period of time? However way you would describe. Yeah, that's a harder one
1: because it's very hard to figure out when someone is radicalized and then when it happened. Uh, I'll ask my folks to think about what information we can get you on that. We'll do our best.
3: Yes, thank you. Probably during the course of your investigation, you might be able to ascertain when they became radicalized. We, um, I'm, t- I'm turning to the death threats against certain judges. Uh, We have an administration that challenges federal judges who disagree with President Trump's views. We've seen this in the campaign and during his presidency. Following Judge Derek Watson's ruling blocking the president's revised travel ban, Judge Watson, who sits on the Hawaii District Court. Uh, Judge Watson began receiving death threats. I understand the U.S. Marshals have primary responsibility for the protection of federal judges, but that the FBI, FBI is poised to step in if necessary. Is the FBI investigating the threats made against Judge Watson?
1: I believe we are. Was last week, visited the Honolulu Field Office and got briefed on our work, again, to assist the Marshals in trying to understand the threats and protect the judge. So I, I believe we are.
3: And then in February, the three Ninth Circuit judges who ruled against the president's first travel ban also began receiving threats. Is the FBI investigating those threats?
1: I don't know that one for sure. I bet we are, but I can't answer uh, with confidence as I sit here.
3: So. It, can we say that any time federal judges are threatened that the FBI would likely be involved in investigating those threats?
1: Probably in most circumstances. The marshals have the primary responsibility. And in my experience, they very, very often ask us for assistance on our what information we may have, some of our technical resources. They're pretty darn good. But in most cases, I think we offer assistance.
3: And are the president's continued attacks on the judiciary emboldening... Uh, emboldening uh, individuals to make these sorts of threats. We're in an environment where some people might think that it's okay to issue these kinds of threats against uh, judges who disagree with the president.
1: Yeah, that's not something I think I can comment on. Um, It's concerning whenever people are directing threats at judges because their independence and insulation from influence, whether fear or favor, is at the core of the whole justice Mm -hmm. system, which is why we take them so seriously.
3: Yes, and and so speaking of uh, the independence uh, of not just the judiciary, but um, I'd like you to clarify the um, FBI's independence from the DOJ apparatus. Can the FBI conduct an investigation independent from the Department of Justice? Or does the FBI have to disclose all its investigations to the DOJ? Does it have to get uh, the uh, attorney general's consent?
1: But we work with the Department of Justice, whether that's Maine Justice or U.S. Attorney's Offices, on all of our investigations. And so we work with them. And so in a a legal sense, we're not independent of the Department of Justice. We are spiritually, culturally pretty independent group. um, And that's the way you would want it. But yeah, we work with the Department of Justice on all of our investigations.
3: So if the Attorney General or senior officials at the Department of Justice opposes a specific investigation, can they halt that FBI investigation?
1: In theory, yes.
3: Has it happened?
1: Not in my experience, because it would be a big deal to tell the FBI to stop doing something that without an appropriate purpose. I mean we're oftentimes They give us opinions that we don't see a case there, and so you ought to stop investing resources in it. But I'm talking about a situation where we were told to stop something for a political reason. That would be a very big deal. It's not happened in my experience.
3: Well, a number of us have called for an independent investigator or a special prosecutor to uh, investigate the the Russian efforts to undermine or to interfere with our elections, as well as the Trump uh, team's relationships with these uh, these russian efforts and uh, should the department of justice decide that there should be such as an uh, in, independent investigator or special prosecutor and you already have an ongoing fbi investigation into these matters uh, how w- uh, and the attorney general has already recused himself so how would you, how would this uh, proceed when you have the department of uh, uh, justice conducting or assigning an independent or special prosecutor, and then you're already doing an investigation. How would this work?
1: Our investigative team would just coordinate with a, a different set of prosecutors. It's as if a case was moved from one U.S. attorney's office to another. The investigative team just starts working with a different set of assistant U.S. attorneys. You don't, you don't miss it. So
3: the two investigations could proceed, but you would talk to each other. Right. It's one, investig-
1: it's one investigation, and the strength of the- justice system at the federal level in the United States is, the prosecutors and the agents work together on their investigations. And so the investigators would disengage from one prosecutor and hook up to another and just continue going.
3: So in the investigations that you're currently doing um, on the Russian interference and the Trump team's uh, relationship... Uh, Are you coordinating with uh, any U.S. Attorney's Office on those investigations?
1: uh, Two sets of prosecutors, Maine Justice, the National Security Division, and the Eastern District of Virginia U.S. Attorney's Office.
3: So should the AG decide to go with a special prosecutor, then you would end your uh, engagement with these other two entities and and work with the uh, DOJ? Well, I could special prosecutor,
1: potentially. Or it could be that in some circumstances an attorney general appoints someone else to oversee it. And you keep the career-level prosecutive team. And so to the prosecutors and the agents, there's no change except the boss is different.
3: If I could just ask one more follow-up question. So has this happened before where you're doing an investigation and the attorney general uh, appoints a special prosecutor to conduct the same investigation?
1: It happened to me when I was in what I thought was my last job ever in the government as deputy attorney general. And I appointed Patrick Fitzgerald, then the U.S. Attorney in Chicago, to oversee a very sensitive investigation involving allegations that Bush administration officials outed a CIA operative. And so what happened is the team of agents that had been working for uh, up a chain that came to me was just moved over and worked up under Patrick Fitzgerald.
3: Okay. Thank you. So it happens. Thank you, you, you Madam Chair. Last but far from least, Senator Blumenthal.
6: <laughs> Thank you, uh, <clears throat> Madam Chair. Uh, to take the analogy that you began with, I think we're at the end of the dentist visit, uh, or toward the end of it anyway, and uh, fortunately there's no unlimited time that uh, the last questioner can take. Uh,
1: My dentists sometimes ask questions too. <laughs>
6: <laughs> uh, to, to pursue the line of questioning that Senator Hirono just, just finished, uh, there is abundant precedent, is there not, for the appointment of a special prosecutor. In fact, there are regulations and guidelines for the appointment of a special prosecutor. Yes. And that has happened frequently in the history of the Department of Justice. You mentioned one in your experience. Also, uh, then designee Attorney General uh, uh, Richardson appointed a special prosecutor, Archibald Cox, who then pursued the Watergate investigation, correct?
1: Yes, there's been many examples
6: of it. So this would not be a earth-shaking, seismic occurrence for a special prosecutor to be appointed. In fact, taking your record, which is one of dedication to the credibility and integrity of our criminal justice process and your families, I would think that at some point you might recommend... That there be a special prosecutor. Would that be appropriate at some
1: point? It's possible. I know one of my predecessors did it, Louis Fried, did it with respect to a Clinton administration issue about Chinese interference in election. So it's possible.
6: And I take your contention that you don't want to talk about your conversations with the current Deputy Attorney General. But my hope is that you will, in fact, argue forcefully and vigorously for the appointment of special prosecutor. I think that the circumstances here are exactly parallel to the situation where you appointed Patrick Fitzgerald, Fitzpatrick and others where routinely special prosecutors have been appointed. And uh, I know that your recommendation may never be disclosed, but I would urge that, that you do so. Uh, Going back to uh, the questions that you asked about your announcement initially that you were terminating the investigation of Hillary Clinton, you said that the matter was one of intense public interest and therefore you were making additional comments about it. Normally, there would have been no comments, correct? Correct. And at most, you would have said, as you did just now, there was no prosecutable case, correct? Correct. And you went beyond that statement and said that she had been extremely careless, I believe was the word that you used, which was an extraordinary comment. Would you agree that the investigation of the Trump campaign's potential involvement in the Russian interference is also an investigation of intense public interest?
1: Yes, I agree.
6: In fact, there are probably very few investigations that will be done while you're FBI director that will be of more intense public interest. And my question is, will you commit to explaining the results of the investigation at the time when it is concluded.
1: I won't commit to it, Senator, but I I do commit to apply the same principles and and reasoning to it. I just don't know where we'll end up, so I can't commit sitting here.
6: But you would agree that as the FBI director, you would need to go beyond simply saying there's no prosecutable case or there is a prosecutable case? Potentially. Potentially. When I was U.S. attorney uh, many years ago, there was actually a rule in the Department of Justice that there could be no report on any grand jury matter or any investigation without permission of the attorney general or main justice. I don't know whether that rule still applies, but speaking more generally, do you think it's a good idea for prosecutors or yourself to be able to comment in some way to explain the results of an investigation?
1: Not in general, I don't. I think, it, I think it's important that there be, as there has been for a long time, a recognized exception for the exceptional case. I referred to the IRS uh, alleged targeting investigation, which was also of intense public interest, and then I actually had someone prepare for me a chart. The department has done it infrequently, but done it a dozen or more times in the last five, 10 years. It ought to be reserved for those extraordinary cases, but there are times where the public interest warrants it. With respect to the investigation
6: ongoing into the Trump associates' ties to the Russian meddling, has the White House cooperated?
1: With the investigation? Correct. It's not something I'm going to comment on.
6: Have you had any requests for immunity from anyone potentially a target of that investigation?
1: I have to give you the same answer, Senator.
6: Would you tell this committee if there is a lack of cooperation on the part of the White House? I won't commit to that. Isn't there, again, another reason for there to be a special prosecutor? Because who would you complain to? the Deputy Attorney General, if there were a lack of cooperation on the part of the Trump White House?
1: If there was a challenge with any investigation that I couldn't resolve at at the uh, working level, I would elevate it to the Deputy Attorney General, whoever was in charge of it.
6: But the Deputy Attorney General is appointed by the President, correct? Correct. Isn't that an inherent conflict of interest?
1: It's, It's a consideration, but also the nature of the person in the role is also a very important consideration. I think we're lucky to have somebody who thinks about the justice system very similar to the way I do and Pat Fitzgerald does and the way you did. And let me um,
6: ask, again, to just clarify a question that uh, Senator Corono asked. The career prosecutors so far involved are in the National Security Division in Maine Justice and the Eastern District of Virginia, United States Attorney's Office, correct? Correct. But the decision about prosecuting would be made by their boss, I think, is the word you use, correct? Correct. And that would probably be, right now, the Deputy Attorney General, correct?
1: Correct. In a matter of, of, of a complexity and significance, the decision, ultimate decision in practice is almost always made at the highest level in the department, which would be uh, Rod Rosenstein. Uh, And let me ask
6: uh, one last question, unrelated. Uh, You were asked by Senator Leahy about targets of investigation. I think your comment was that there were more citizens currently under investigation for potentially terrorist violence or extremist violence than non-citizens. Is that correct? Correct. In terms of sources of information, are there many non-citizens who have provided such information? Yes. And are a large number of them undocumented residents of the United States?
1: I don't know what percentage. I'm sure some significant percentage are. So cooperation from them
6: is important. And the fear of apprehension, of roundups, of mass detention would be a significant deterrent for them. Would it not?
1: In theory, I don't know whether we've seen an impact in practice, though. I I just don't know as I sit here. Could
6: you inquire or do some internal research to the extent it is possible and report back to us about it? Sure. Thank you, Madam Chairman.
3: Thank you very much, Um, Senator. Director, I think this concludes the hearing. Let me thank you for your ability to last for many hours. It's very (laughs) impressive. And let me also thank ladies and gentlemen in the audience. Many of you have been here from the very beginning. Thank you for your attention, and uh, uh, thank you for being respectful. It's very much appreciated. And the hearing is adjourned.